feels like I should just keep on walking, following these guys up. <laughs> Great to have the uh, orchestra back, choir. Thank you, Sam, for uh, leading us in worship. Uh, what a beautiful day. I'm amazed you're in here. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to go up to about 16, 17 degrees today. It's so beautiful to be entering spring. We're... Uh, We've been in this series, Church on Fire, going through Revelation 1 through 3, and this is the last message in the series. A number of people have asked us to continue on in Revelation, and we will continue on eventually, just not next weekend. As we prepare for Easter, we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew uh, doing a, a series entitled Parables and Passion. So we're looking forward to that. Um, we're in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, I think it's page 1030, page 1030. Do you enjoy entering uh, display homes? Kind of go through the entrance, and somebody does, and uh, you feel the ambience of the home. Uh, maybe you stroll through the living room, peek into the den. Uh, maybe you go into a family room. Imagine what the dining area might look like. If you're with family, then you argue over which room will belong to whom. Anyways, you imagine decorating that home. You imagine filling that home with life, each room with life. Now, imagine the home to be your personal life. Have you invited Jesus into your home? Has he come through the entrance? Uh, have you allowed him to occupy the living room? How many rooms of your life does he occupy? One or two? Every room? Imagine that the home of your life has rooms of the past. And in the rooms of the past, there are wrongs that you remember. There are disappointments. There are regrets. Maybe in your, the home of your life there are rooms of the present, and in the present there are anxieties and worries and fears, doubts that reside there. And if you think about the rooms of the future, then there are your plans and your dreams and your vision of what life might be. How many rooms of your personal life have you allowed Jesus to enter? In this last message, Jesus, he stands before closed doors. And of the seven messages to the seven churches, this message is probably the most hard-hitting, but it's also the most promising. The diagnosis that Jesus gives is the most severe, but his words are also very, very tender. There are certain words that are really hard to hear. But we need to hear Jesus' heart for us because he passionately desires to fill every room of our lives with life. Do we want to hear Jesus' heart for us? Amen. Do we want to hear Jesus' heart for us? Amen. 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 Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are present among us as the book of Revelation tells us. You walk among the churches. And as your word says, you have sent your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. It's your promise. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning that you guide us into truth as we read through your word. 
May we understand it. May we know how to apply it to our lives on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, page 1030. Here we go, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, let's say a little bit about the setting here so that we understand what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Laodicea and Colossae and Herapolis, they were like the tri-cities of Asia Minor. Laodicea was the most prominent. Laodicea was a wealthy financial center. It was known for its banks. Laodicea was also known for its thriving wool garment industry. In fact, it, it had this, um, it was famous for this wool, soft wool, raven black wool. And so the garments from Laodicea, they were exported around the world. This brought fame. This brought money. It also housed a famous school of medicine. Laodicea was known for an ointment for the healing of the eyes, the healing of the ears. And so this too brought more fame and money. Just a few expressions of this wealth from the first century. In 60 AD, uh, Laodicea suffered a devastating earthquake. We still hear of earthquakes in Turkey. 60 AD, tremendous earthquake, ruined the city. Rome offered to help rebuild the city, and Laodicea said, no thanks, we will rebuild on our own, and they did it. In the first century as well, the Jews from Jerusalem, they asked the Jews of Laodicea to send them financial aid. And the Jews took from their banks in Laodicea 22 and a half pounds of gold and sent it to Jerusalem. That's like half a million dollars in today's monetary terms. So a wealthy city. The religion was syncretistic. That means that there was the mixing of religions. Even the Jews, they mixed their Jewish faith with the local gods, with the Roman gods. And it, see, it appears that the church, too, came under this compromising pressure because in Paul's, uh, sorry, uh, Jesus' message to the church, there's no mention of suffering. There's no mention of persecution. It appears that the church just assimilated with the environment around it, became like the society of Laodicea. How does Jesus, the presenter of the message, present himself to the church? Verse 14, 
The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Words of the Amen. Amen, for us, it's kind of like a period at the end of our prayers, right? Kind of like an afterthought. In Isaiah 65, the living God presents himself as the God of Amen, the God of truth. In Hebrew, to say Amen, it's to say that something is utterly trustworthy, completely reliable. So Jesus is saying, I am the real thing. I am reality defined. I am the truth. I'm the solid foundation upon which you can build. The Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus, the exact image of God. If you want to see God, look at Jesus, the true representation of the Father, absolute truth. Jesus is everything that the Laodiceans were not. (laughs) If you looked at the church in Laodicea, you would not see the image of Jesus. I think one thing that we need to remember is that we live immersed in a culture where truth is relative. We see evidence of this again in the SNC-Lavalin affair here in Canada where people are talking about my truth and his truth and her truth as if there were no objective truth to deal with. You see, we live in a world where we want to create truth for ourselves despite the facts at hand. Divorce truth from any kind of mooring so that we can just slide with the current of our time. If we're following Jesus we need to ask ourselves, are we still tied to the truth, Jesus, or are we drifting? Are we still tied to the truth, or are we drifting the way our culture is? Jesus is the amen. He's the true and faithful witness. He's the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one created. That word beginning, it means source, origin. It can also mean ruler, preeminent one. So Jesus is the source of creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the ruler over all of creation. The Laodiceans, they would have been very familiar with Paul's letter to the Colossians. In fact, Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, he says, have this letter read to the Laodiceans. Chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul describes Jesus. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, So Jesus is all of this and more. Know who wants to enter the rooms of your life. Take note of who wants to enter the rooms of your life. Jesus says, I am the amen, the truth. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the ruler over all of creation. I'm the beginning and the end the source, the foundation, the goal of all things. I'm the beginning of God's new creation. I was resurrected from the dead. I'm exalted to the right hand of the Father. I'm reigning over all things. And you, Laodiceans, you think that with your wealth you have much? 
You think that you're important, that you're in control, that you say to me, I have need of nothing? Really? You're delirious. You're blinded to the truth. What's Jesus aware of in Laodicea? Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's Jesus saying here? Did Jesus go to Starbucks in Laodicea and ask for hot coffee or iced coffee and they served him lukewarm coffee? I hate lukewarm coffee as well. What's he saying? Well, we need to understand the context. You see, remember the neighboring cities, Herapolis and Colossae. Herapolis, just across the valley from Laodicea, it was known for its hot mineral spring water. Colossae, a little farther away, it was known for its cold, fresh, pure spring water. And so Jesus, he's saying to the church in Laodicea, you are neither like Herapolis nor like Colossae. You see, Laodicea had no water supply of its own, but it was a wealthy city. And so it actually channeled water from 10 kilometers away via a stone aqueduct. But when the water came to, when it arrived in Laodicea, it was already lukewarm. And there was lime in the water, so it was distasteful. Visitors, visitors to Laodicea that weren't used to the water, they would drink the water and spit it out. <laughs> they experienced nausea. They wanted to vomit. So that's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying to the church in Laodicea, you should be like Herapolis. Spiritual healing in your church. Spiritual healing for the sick. But you're not like that and you're not like Colossae. You don't bring spiritual refreshment to the weary soul. You help no one. You're outwardly beautiful. You're the best dressed in Asia Minor. But you're devoid of spiritual life. The worst diagnosis for a church. You see, Jesus, he didn't want their mild approval, their respectful nod. He was looking for conviction, (laughs) for surrender, for passion. And quite frankly, lukewarm faith is of interest to no one. If my faith is lukewarm, it's of no value to me or to you. James Emery White writes in his book, Generation Z, or Generation Z, if you prefer. I'll quote him. The reality is that lukewarm religion holds little value in the midst of a settling secularism. What grips a conscience is anything gripping. If a worldview or faith lacks conviction, passion, or life change, then it is presenting itself as both privately and socially irrelevant. Irrelevant. Lukewarm faith is irrelevant. Why should we be passionate about our faith in Jesus? Well, if we have read the scriptures, we know that he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus was sent from the Father. He identified with us. He revealed the Father to us. He went to the cross and died. It wasn't just a good idea. It was the only way for our sin to be paid for so that we might be set free from the weight of sin, so that we might be uh, free from the weight of guilt, so that our shame might be removed, so that we might be at peace with God. It was the only way. 
He was raised from the dead and didn't just defeat just any enemy. No, he defeated sin and death and Satan himself. And he opened wide the door to eternal life. He is the door. Raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things. And on Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit to abide in his followers, to fill his followers with his very life. And any day he is coming back to establish his just, peaceful reign. And those who have surrendered their lives to him will reign with him. Now, if you truly believe that, how can you be apathetic? If you truly believe what I just said about the gospel, about the good news, how could we possibly be complacent and sit on that message and act if it does not change our lives or the history or the direction of this universe? Everyone on earth needs to hear the good news. But you know, a complacent church a lukewarm faith, an apathetic church. It communicates that the amen, the true and faithful witness, Jesus, not really worthy of that much passion. G. Campbell Morgan has written, lukewarmness, it's the worst form of blasphemy. Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy because we communicate to people that Jesus is not truly who he is. You see, the Laodiceans, they had this comfortable religious routine. They sang the hymns. They read the scriptures. But in their daily life, they were guided by the values and the priorities of Laodicea. They were just like everyone else around them. There was nothing different. Figuratively speaking, they had drunk the water of Laodicea. Where have we been drinking? Are we drinking the water of Vancouver? Or are we drinking the living water of Jesus? Whose water are we drinking? Do we actually want the amen, the true and faithful witness, the ruler over all of creation, do we want him to transform our lives, to transform our way of seeing, our beliefs, our thinking, our values, our priorities, our behavior? Do we really want him to change our lives for his glory? Do we want the one who blesses Do we want to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit or do we just come for a blessing? God, I'm in crisis today, so please, please help me get through this one. Is that how far our faith goes? Is that the only room that we have invited Jesus into, the room of crisis? If when I'm really in need, Jesus, please come help me. But all the other rooms, I still have the doors closed. How do we live our faith in Jesus. Jesus continues with his assessment, verse 17, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I need nothing. Those are really dangerous words. The Laodiceans, wealthy, but compromised, self-satisfied, complacent. They believed themselves to be rich. They believed themselves to be the blessed of God. Their affluence, their pride was blinding them to the truth. And I think that we must admit that one of the hardest places to be a disciple of Jesus 
is in a beautiful city like Greater Vancouver. Isn't Greater Vancouver one of the best places on earth? It truly is. And we should be thankful for that. I mean, we're surrounded by natural beauty. The city is thriving. There are jobs. There's an amazing social net for those who are in need. There are parks for everyone. Community centers. It's an amazing place. We should recognize that. Number of, well, it's actually about a month ago, I was in downtown Vancouver with three friends. I'm not making this up. There were four of us. One friend from Saskatchewan, one from Manitoba, and one from Ontario. And all three said, we get why people want to live here. And I, I didn't say anything. I just kind of smiled. But <laughs> on that day, it was like minus 50 in Saskatoon with the wind chill and minus 40 in Winnipeg and really cold in Ontario. And I thought to myself, I get why you would want to live here. We live in a wonderful place. Jacques Ellul, he's a French sociologist, and he said that one of the easiest places for human beings to consider God irrelevant is in the city. It's easy to think in the city, hey, we built this. We did it with our intelligence, with our ingenuity, with our engineering, with our strength. We built it. We designed it. We did it our way. We have need of nothing. We're okay. The city just nurtures independence. Jesus looks at one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor, Laodicea, looks at the church and says, you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, blind, and naked. Those first two are just general descriptions. You're miserable, you're pitiful. The last three are tied to the sources of wealth in Laodicea. And he's saying, hey, despite your banks, you are spiritually bankrupt in the things of the Spirit. Despite your beautiful garments, you're so well-dressed, but you're spiritually naked. Your shame is exposed. Despite that eye ointment that you have invented that has brought you so much fame and wealth, you're spiritually blind. Jesus would say to the Laodiceans and to us, know that you desperately need to have Jesus enter the rooms of your life. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how much you think that you have it all together, know that you desperately need to have Jesus enter all the rooms of your life. We sang today, I need you more. I pray that we will always sing, I need you more. Not just sing it, but sing it from our hearts. Jesus, I need you more than ever before. What counsel does he have for the church in Laodicea? Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, Jesus, he doesn't want them to remain in that repulsive, nauseating condition. He has so much more for them. He wants them to experience life in its fullness. That's why he gave his life and he comes with a hopeful word. We need to hear Jesus' love in the counsel that he gives. Buy from me gold refined by fire. And the key phrase there is that phrase, from me, from Jesus. You see, the Laodiceans, they've gone to the wrong source for wealth. They've gone to their banks. 
And Jesus says, you need to come to me, the source of true wealth. Gold refined by fire, gold that will last. Buy from me white garments. Laodiceans, you clothe yourselves with your beautiful black wool clothing. And you think you're dressed. You are naked. Your shame is exposed. I want to clothe you. I do want to honor you with garments of righteousness, the clothing of my righteousness, purchased for you through my death and resurrection, so that you might stand before the Father. Buy those garments for me. Buy from me ointment to heal your eyes. I want to touch you with my healing touch so that you can see, so that you can repent, do a U-turn, and take your first step toward revival. Third point in your outline, know that only Jesus can bring life and healing to your rooms. Know that only Jesus can bring life and healing to your rooms. What's the appeal that Jesus makes here? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. These aren't angry, irrational words of rejection. Jesus is speaking to his children in love, with, with, with affection, with feeling. Jesus, who, the one who loves us, he doesn't come to us just to point out the problem so that we will wallow in our misery. No, he points things out so that we might consider how we might change. Jesus doesn't come to us and discipline us just to rob us. No, he wants to guide us down the path to life. Jesus comes as a father who delights in his children so that we might be filled with passionate faith, so that the fire might return to our hearts, so that we might be captured by the love of Jesus. You see, the root cause of complacency is the exclusion of Jesus. Jesus is on the outside, and the fire is gone. So how do we move? How do we move from that repulsive, nauseating condition where we're just complacent and apathetic and our faith in Jesus is lukewarm to a faith that is healing and life-giving and refreshing? How do we make that transition to, from what is nauseating to what is life-giving? Oh, there's someone at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, behold, wake up. I'm at the door knocking. The one who loves you, I don't just come to reprove you, to discipline you. I stand at the door and knock. I come as a friend asking for permission to enter. You know, this verse, it's often used as a verse, a message for those who do not yet know Jesus. But we need to understand that the verse, the message was first given to believers who were leaving Jesus on the outside. Believers who were blind, naked, and poor, who were saying to Jesus, Jesus, we've got this. We need nothing. Jesus knocks. But there's a condition for him to enter. What is it? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We have to open the door. 
Holman Hunt's famous painting of this verse, it depicts so well what's happening. Jesus, he stands at the door and he's knocking, but the door has no handle. It has no latch. Why? Because the door has to be opened from the inside. At the time of the writing of this message, the Romans, uh, they were exacting a heavy tax on the Laodiceans. And Roman bureaucrats and soldiers, they would come into Laodicea and they would demand that the Laodiceans should house them, feed them, pay for their stay. They violated the Laodiceans. The contrast with Jesus is so striking. He doesn't force entry. He doesn't come to us and kick the door in, barrel through the door of our hearts. He respects our will. He makes himself available at the door and gently knocks, but he awaits permission to enter. I think this is astounding, that the one who has created all things, the one who rules over all things, that he should stand at the door and knock and wait for permission to enter. The only one who can allow Jesus to enter your heart is you. No one can open the door for you. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor Ray, why doesn't God change my husband? That's my wife's question. (laughs) Why doesn't God change my wife? Why doesn't God change my friend? Why doesn't he just change my son, change my daughter? Because he respects their will. He respects your will, my will. In the first place here in Revelation chapter 3, the word is for Christians who have excluded Jesus, but if they open the door of their hearts, Jesus will share a meal with them. And this is such a beautiful picture because in the ancient world, sharing a meal, it was a symbol of enduring friendship. It was a place of conversation. It was a place of intimacy. And if you were estranged, then if you invited someone to come share a meal with you, it meant that there was a way open to reconciliation. There was hope. You see, if we turn to the door, if we repent and turn to the door and open it, Jesus promises to enter into deep friendship with us. And the verb here, it indicates that Jesus is continually knocking. This is grace. So know that only you can open the door of your heart. Only you can open the door of your heart for Jesus. So open it. Why would you not open it? Why would I not open it? What does Jesus promise to those who open the door? The one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we allow Jesus to enter into our hearts, we enter into his victory. We are among those who conquer power to not sin. There's only power to not sin when Jesus is abiding in us, when we're walking in the fullness of his spirit. Victory over death, authority over the evil one. 
When we humble ourselves and repent, turn to the door and open it to him, he not only comes through the door to dine with us, but he says that we will share in his reign. He will lift us up to his throne. In the next chapters of Revelation, we'll come back to them in the future, but if we were to read through the rest of Revelation, we would see that the throne is actually the dominant image of the rest of Revelation. In chapter 4, God the Father is on a glorious throne. Chapter 5, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is exalted to the right hand of the Father and shares the throne with his Father. Revelation chapter 20, those who have opened their hearts to Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, they are raised to glory and reign with him. That's an amazing truth, an amazing thought. To the one who opens the door of his heart, a door stands open in heaven, and Jesus is the door. So know that Jesus holds the door open in heaven. Prepare to go through it. Jesus holds open the door of heaven. And he wants us to experience life in its fullness right now and to reign with him forevermore. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler over all of creation, he invites us into a renewed relationship with us. He urges us to open the door so that we might experience his healing power, so that we might be filled with the fullness of his spirit, the power of the new creation within us, so that the fire within us might be lit again. Jesus gave his all so that he might be our all. Now, there's only one remedy for my home and for your home. Only one, to let Jesus in. And the only one who can open the door of your heart is you. Maybe you have never turned the door handle for Jesus. But today you know that you need him. You recognize today that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are naked, that you are poor, that you need what Jesus offers. Then I would urge you, Jesus would invite you to open the door. Maybe you opened the door to Jesus years ago, but slowly you've been closing the door. You've been excluding Jesus from your life. And so your faith feels rather empty today, rather barren, stale. Jesus knocks, and he asks you to open the door again. Maybe we need to repent for pride. Maybe we need to repent for indifference, for apathy, for just being carried along with the current of our time. Maybe we have only let Jesus in through the front door. We prayed a prayer to receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, but we just left, let him through the front door into the entrance, maybe the living room, but the rest of the rooms, the doors are closed. Have you let Jesus into the room of your work? Does Jesus occupy that room? Maybe you're a student. Have you let Jesus into the study room? The room of your family, have you let Jesus in? The room of your marriage, maybe the room of singleness, have you let Jesus in? The room of money, have you let Jesus in? Or are you constantly worried about 
your financial future. The room of sexuality, have you let Jesus in? The rooms of your past, your wounds, your disappointments, your regrets, have you let Jesus in to heal you? The rooms of your present where there are anxieties and fears and doubts, are you letting Jesus in today? The rooms of your future, your your dreams, your visions, your plans, have you let Jesus in? Are you afraid to allow Jesus to show you what his will for you is? Do you believe that his will for you is good and acceptable and perfect for you? The only one that can fill the rooms of your life and my life with true life is Jesus. The only one who can make those rooms what they were meant to be is Jesus. So may we let him in. Amen. May we let him in and surrender all that we are to him. May we let Jesus occupy every room, fill every corner of our homes with his life that we might live for his glory. Amen? May they never say about Willingdon Church, oh, that's a church where the complacent go. That's a place where the apathetic go. That's a place where the compromise go. May they say about Willingdon that that is a church on fire, set on fire by Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. And and I do believe that in this moment it's appropriate, if we can, to get on our knees. I'm going to do that. And uh, if you want to kneel, uh, sometimes it's hard depending on where you are in the sanctuary, but feel free to get on your knees if that's what you believe you want to do. Maybe you have never turned the door handle. And uh, today you want to surrender your life to Jesus. And so I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I just thank you today for the invitation to know you. Thank you for knocking on the door of my heart. Please forgive me, Lord, for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all of my sins. I repent today. I turn to you. I surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and for new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you uh, prayed that for the first time, please come forward. Go to the prayer center, welcome center. We want to encourage you in your journey. Don't go home without telling someone about your decision to follow Jesus. And now a prayer for all of us as disciples. Father, we thank you that in your grace you draw us back to yourself. And today, again, we acknowledge that we desperately need you, Jesus. Fill every room of our lives, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you. We look to you for life, for healing on this day. 
Thank you that you knock at the door of our hearts. We repent for pride. We repent for the fear of man. We repent for our blindness, for our indifference, for our apathy. Oh God, light the fire in our hearts again. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Maybe you need to let Jesus into your family room. Let him in. Maybe you need to let him into the room of marriage. Let Jesus in. Maybe you need to let him into the room of singleness. Let Jesus in today. Maybe you need to let him into the room of your children. Let Jesus in. If you're a student, maybe you need to let him into the study room. Let him take over. If you're working, let Jesus into the office. Let him into the workplace. Let Jesus into the room called money. Oh God, may we find our security in you. Let Jesus into the room called sexuality. As you consider the rooms of the past, let him into those rooms. Those rooms where there are wrongs and disappointments and regrets. Let Jesus bring healing. The rooms of the present where anxieties and doubts and fears reside, let him in. Surrender your present to Jesus. Trust in him fully. The rooms of the future where your plans reside, your visions, your dreams, let Jesus in. Allow him to guide you into the future that he has for you. His will for you is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus, we ask that you occupy every room of our lives. Fill us with your life. Make us like yourself, we pray. Make every room what it was meant to be. Jesus, we let you in. And we ask that you use us for your glory. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.